we're going to be uh, in our lectionary text uh, this one more week, this week, um, and then we're going to start a series uh, next week that will take us all the way through the season of Lent on uh, the seven deadly sins and what repentance looks like and what does it look like to be formed into the image and likeness of Christ, kind of using this ancient uh, uh, lens of looking at virtue and vice formation. So that'll start next week. This week we'll, we'll be in three different places uh, all over the scriptures. The first is starting in Jeremiah 17. The fifth verse is where we'll begin. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for his leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I am the Lord. I search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. Our second reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at the 12th verse. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And finally, from the Gospels, Luke chapter 6, starting at the 17th verse. And he came down with them, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that nourishes us, that feeds us deep down in our bellies. And God, I pray that we would be open and receptive to your word, that you would illuminate these words by your spirit. And our whole lives would be lit up by them. God, I pray that you would help me, that my words would rightly reflect your word. And where they do not, may they fall to the ground and be forgotten. In all things, Jesus, draw our eyes to you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, It was... uh, was it was really, um, it was lovely to be at the men's breakfast yesterday. I didn't think I'd say those words, but that's how it just comes out of my mouth. It was lovely uh, to be in the room with about 25 to 30 guys. Um, uh, this is a, I, I was not in charge of this. I was not leading this. Um, so I just came as a participant, and I really had no idea what it was going to be. I was like, I need to go to this thing, and it may be me and three people having breakfast together. Um, and there was like eight people there before I even got there. I was there 15 minutes early. Thank you very much. Um, and it was, uh, one, one thing that's, if you're, if you do what I do and you do what the staff at our church do, um, sometimes it just feels like we got to make everything happen, which isn't true, but it just feels that way sometimes. And when we get to come into, when I get to come into a room and I see, people who are stepping up and leading for the first time. Seeing Josh and Joe and the guys who are behind them step out and make this happen. And it was wonderful, it was fantastic. Um, It's so, so encouraging um, that this, the first time it's happened and and it looked like this and to imagine like, okay, really this is the floor and it can even get better than this, that's crazy, Um, probably I think the most special thing for most of us was to pray for Lucas, um, to come around this guy, he's 12 years old, and to have a bunch of men put their hands on him and bless him in the name of Jesus uh, is powerful, is formative. And, and, you know, I didn't expect any of that. But when, when that kind of thing happens, when you move into a life uh, together, whether you're doing it at a men's breakfast or a small group or whatever it is, you have these moments sometimes where kind of the windows shades are pulled up or the door opens and you realize there, there are two ways to go about life, a life like this, rich and shared together following Jesus, and this other way, alone and in the cold. And that kind of dual way of living is all over our text this morning. 
uh, both in what we just read and in our call to worship. You can think back all the way to whatever, 32 minutes ago. Uh, Psalm 1 is the same sort of thing, that there are two ways to live in this world. You can live richly rooted in the life of God, or you can be disconnected and live like Jeremiah says in chapter 17 as this withering shrub in the desert. And this kind of imagery is what you need to keep in mind as you listen to Jesus' teaching here on the plains. Um, this section, which sounds like the Beatitudes, if you're familiar with the biblical text at all, there's, and you've probably even, if you're not really familiar with the Bible, you may have heard the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed uh, are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, all those kinds of things. We call those the Beatitudes. Those are Matthew's accounting of Jesus' teaching, but he's teaching on the mountain. That's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And Luke has this uh, body of teaching that is similar and yet different, and Jesus is in a different place. And for some people, that's like very confusing. And uh, what's going on here is, is who's right, Luke or Matthew? Who did it right? Well, probably Jesus taught on the same thing multiple times. Uh, he's a good preacher. He is the best preacher of all time. And he, if he felt like this was good and true at one time, almost certainly he still felt like it was good and true later. Uh, so one time he's delivering a version of this on the mountain, and this time in Luke's accounting, he is giving a slightly different condensed version of these blessings, but also setting them against these woes. So four blessings and four woes. And it's really important to remember the context that Luke describes, right? Jesus is on the plain, and people are gathering to him. What kind of people are being gathered to him? It's the kind of people that Luke is especially concerned that you and I pay attention to. The kind of people that he highlights for the entirety of his gospel, which is the outcast, the Gentile, the forgotten, the discarded and unclean women constantly pop up in Luke's gospel because he's constantly trying to show you the wide extent of God's work in Christ in the world. And here on the plain, Jesus is, seems like, feels like he's surrounded by them. And he's healing them, he's ministering to them, and he begins to teach them these things. He looks at this audience and he proclaims that they are the blessed ones. There's uh, one commentator, Jonathan Pennington, who writes about Matthew's Beatitudes, and he says this understanding of blessing is best understood as flourishing. There's a vision for human flourishing here that Jesus is teaching on, and he's proclaiming in the moment that these people, this rabble, these castoffs, they are actually the blessed and flourishing ones. Now, Jesus' list in teaching here is antithetical to the place and time that we live. In the particular place that we live in the United States, we flatly reject Jesus' teaching. This cannot possibly be true. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are those who persecute, or who are persecuted. And pretty much all of us in this country, in our culture, leverage our entire lives 
to, in, to avoid all of these things. And largely, we live in a place together where we have successfully done that. The measure of poverty and hunger and persecution is markedly different than a lot of places in the world. So that even our version of, say, like felt persecution is to our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world pretty laughable. Our version of persecution is people said mean things about me on the internet. Where their version of persecution is my whole family died and our village was burned to the ground. We together have bent our lives around the avoidance of these things so that when we hear Jesus say, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who mourn, we instinctively say that cannot mean what he says. And a, and a significant portion of commentary around these texts is, is engaged in the task of saying, well, obviously he doesn't mean that. He can't mean that. And let's be clear here. Jesus is not blessing poverty. He's not saying poverty is blessed. He is not saying mourning is blessed. He's not saying hunger is blessed because God over and over and over and over again in the scriptures tells his people to act to alleviate poverty, to eliminate hunger, to seek to eliminate the circumstances that bring about suffering and mourning. So he's not saying poverty is good, hunger is good, but he is looking at the people who are experiencing it, who are all around him, literally. And he's saying, you are the blessed ones. Now we kind of instinctively, I don't know whether it's uh, conditioned to just our place and time. I kind of don't think it's, that's the case. I think it's sort of a human thing. We look at the things that we can see and work backward to make a judgment about whether actually God views you as blessed or not. So here's the latest example from my life. It's so simple and that and for me, it was so illustrative of this thing that seems to be like put into our native operating systems. My parents are in town, and we were talking about having to get COVID tests for exposure or whatever. And my mom said, I've actually not had to have a COVID test yet, which is unbelievable. Like, I, I'm almost certain she doesn't live in a plastic bubble. Correct. Okay, but that I don't understand how that happens. But she's never had to have the thing shoved up her nostril, tickle your brain, and test you for COVID. And everybody in my family has, all of us, um, and various degrees uh, of crying. Uh, and my wife has comforted me and my children through that. <laughs> and my one of my kids looks at my mom and says, "Wow, God must really like you." And I was like, I didn't say anything, but in my head I was like, that is terrible theology. <laughs> Who taught her that? Where did that come from? I did not teach her that. I, I have never in any way created that formula for her. 
Now, it's an understandable deduction. We talk about all good things come from God. We give God thanks for what he gives to us. We talk about how God is an almighty God in control of all things, how he's a loving father who wants to give us good things. So she did the simple math here. Good thing happened to you. God is in control of good things. He has given you this really nice thing of never having the thing shoved up your nose. God must like you more because you had this good thing. And we don't always make that math explicit in our minds and our hearts and talk about it, especially as you're adults and you sort of learn how to police your speech a little bit and recognizing that certain crowds of Christians would, you know, jump on you for that. But a lot of us really tend to believe that way. Man, if they have that, God must really like them. Or the inverse, terrible things are happening to me. What did I do to make God mad at me? And of course, this question is tied up all in the middle of the book of Job, where his friends are looking at Job suffering and insisting for dozens of chapters, you clearly have made God mad for something that you have done. All the while, we who are reading know that is not why Job is suffering. But his friends are like us. You cannot be the blessed ones if you are suffering, if you are weeping, if you are hungry, if you are poor. And yet it is precisely these poor and desperate people that Jesus is proclaiming his blessing over. And of course, to make it very clear how often and how widely we miss the mark away from God's way of flourishing in the world, Jesus posits the opposite. He makes it very clear. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. And for us, we look at the list of woes and we say, but those are the things I'm after. I, I, I want the riches. I want the nice meals. I want people to speak well of me. I want to laugh. Those are the things that I'm after. But again, you have to do the same thing that you do with the blessings. Jesus is not saying that riches are bad. Jesus has rich friends, and they use their wealth for his purposes. He's funded by people, women and men, who have extra funds and fund his ministry. And that is the truth through the New Testament. Laughing is not bad. It is not sinful. It is not sinful to have a good meal or to have a good reputation. So you can't make the same mistake that you often might make reading the blessings either. Jesus is talking to groups of people more than he is talking about these things that we want to key in on. It is so easy to make these blessings and woes a ladder of moralism 
Now, we should hear some warning here. The early church was very assertive about people's wealth. And what they said was, you ought to give that stuff away. You are in danger if you are wealthy. They say stuff like that. St. John Chrysostom says to not give to the needy. Your wealth, if you are wealthy, is a theft from the poor. I mean, that's the kind of fervor with which they will teach these things. Because they see, like, there's real, there actually is real kind of danger here that kind of creates the kind of person that Jesus is talking about. The one who finds their chief delight in their wealth, in their fine meals, in the reputation they get from others, in the circumstances of their life. There is real danger when you have all of those nice and comfortable things, which, again, we have to put our hands up and say, we kind of have access to a lot of those where we live, where we are. There is real danger that you are adopting the circumstances in which you live and you become one of these people who find their hope and their consolation in these things. There is real danger there. But remember, Jesus is inviting you to see two ways of living. And the key to those ways of living are about your proximity to him. The people who he proclaims as the blessed ones are the people who have come close to him. The ones who are poor and diseased and suffering in this world, they are already the blessed and flourishing ones because they have come close to Jesus. And the ones, like the Pharisees, who are all over this chapter and further in Luke, are the ones that have kept their distance from him, who would look at his activity, for example, in Luke chapter 6, to heal a man and to say, you ought not to do such things, who would keep themselves at arm's length, would keep their distance. And even though they have all the trappings of comfort and blessing, Jesus tells them, that they are the ones under the woes of God. Jeremiah's instruction in Jeremiah 17 is very clear. You are, are cursed if your confidence is in yourself. Not you will be after you die. Not you will be when bad things happen to you. He says, you are cursed you are a shrub in the desert. And what he says after that is, if your trust is in the Lord, you are blessed. So the blessing of God is not about your wealth. It's not about the number of COVID tests you have had to take and whether they are positive or negative. It is not about the reputation or power that you have in this world, the number of fine meals and fine friends. The blessing of God is irrevocably fixed on you when you come close to Jesus.
And when Jeremiah is preaching in Jeremiah 17, he is projecting forward and proclaiming a truth that feels invisible to a people who are about to be overcome and thrown and cast off into exile. And we are hearing his words and hearing the words of Jesus on the other side of what Paul writes of in 1 Corinthians 15. What the listeners to in Jeremiah 17 here is an invitation to hope and to trust that God would fulfill these descriptive words. But we are the heirs of the promise. And Paul says is that the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin around which everything turns. So while the people who are in the moment gathered around hearing that they are somehow the blessed ones, but they are still swamped and overwhelmed with suffering, the natural question is, how can these words possibly be true? How could I, who am overcome with weeping and mourning and suffering and need, how is it possibly true that I am one of the blessed and flourishing ones, and they only see the fulfillment of how that can possibly be true when they see the resurrected Lord Jesus. It's not just the Jesus they see on the plains. It's the Jesus they see who has walked out of the grave and has tread upon all of their enemies. Because when Jesus is revealed as the resurrected Lord, then you know all of the things, my hunger, my poverty, my suffering, my loneliness, all of those things, Jesus has already not just made words of promise, but a demonstration of his power. So that even if I would suffer unto death, Jesus is the God who has moved through the very portal of death and shaken its kingdom to the ground. So when Jesus stands before the people, stands before you and me on the plains of our life and looks at you and says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the mourning ones, blessed are the suffering ones, Every single one of you who comes close to Jesus has received the unshakable, inconquerable promise of Jesus that he will always be close to you. That the things that are telling you constantly, I am not blessed, I am not flourishing, the suffering of this life is difficult. Jesus is saying, even now, even right there, I am am with you, and I am blessing you with my presence. You will flourish under my care. When it seems like you are cut off from life itself, you will, even in the desert, be a blooming and blossoming tree. I will keep life in your blood as you abide in me and I in you. Your suffering is real. And it tells you nothing about God bestowing his favor on you. That is why, Christian, you should not be surprised when this life has for you a wealth of tears. And when you move into seasons of loneliness and loss and despair, 
Jesus has not changed his mind about you. He has not moved away from you. He is still yet in the darkness of your life, saying to you what can barely be believable. You are blessed even now because I'm with you. And when all the things of this world are going right, and you are tempted to wander off down the road full of self-confidence that I can manage and do things really, really well, and look how everything flourishes under my hand and my own ingenious care, the whisper of Jesus' warning rings in your ear. Beware that way. Beware the wandering away. Because life and blessing comes by my side. And if you are here today, these two ways are still yet before you. They are still effectually true. And Jesus would still position himself directly in front of you and say, if you want to be blessed in this life now and forever, you must come to me. You must come to me. He's not going to present to you a life of blessing and, and wellness that is based on your ability to follow the right list of behaviors all on your own. He's not going to tell you the way that you can achieve and secure the blessing of God is by giving up enough away or securing enough for yourself by seeking the approval and power of others, or by giving it away. What he's going to insist is that you come close to him and find yourself securely in his favor forever. And if you are here today and you know that you have wandered away from that road, today he is speaking to you quite clearly. clearly. Turn around. And come home. He delivers this word to you, not because he loves to stand over you and to shame you and to keep you far from him until you can figure things out. He has come close to you even now because he loves you and he wants you home with him. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But leave the road that you have loved so well and come find your life in Jesus. And if you are here today and you are overwhelmed with the weight of a life that has gone sideways, why am I so lonely, so sick, in so much pain? Why is it so hard? to pay all my bills, to find any friends? Am I under the curse of God? Has he forgotten me? Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that you are seen by God and you are the heir of his covenant promise. 
God has seen fit to allow you to call the Son of God your brother. That by the Holy Spirit, you are drawn into his life forever. And he has not lost track of a single one of your tears. He has not ignored or counted insignificant your sorrow and your suffering. And though we dearly hope and pray that it will end so quickly, you are still a blessed one. And none of those things can take that away. Your healing will come because the resurrected Son of God will fix on you the permanent demonstration of his blessing forever when he makes things new and right as they ought to be. So hold on, and more than that, be held. Let him hear, let your ears be open to his voice, repeating to you his affirmation, I will never leave you, forsake you. Never. Not even now. Not even in that thing. Never. This is the promise of God for his people and the way of life now and forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we are a people in need some of us are, are torn about how, how they're supposed to meet their ends meet. Some people are in deep suffering and mourning that may be known and may be unknown. And it is so tempting to live by the rule of this world, to think that the stuff that we have, the comfort in this life, is an indicator of your love and approval of us. And it is so, so tempting to just manage our lives by ourselves, to trust in ourselves, as Jeremiah said, to have confidence in our own flesh. We wander down that road so easily and so naturally. But we need you, and we need to be close to you. Father, I pray for the people in this room who, they may come to church their whole lives. They may have found themselves here for the first time. I, I don't know. But God, for the people who have lived down that path of self-reliance, God, I pray that you would make clear to them the truth that they are this shriveled shrub caving in on itself, cut off from the nourishment of your life. And Father, I pray that they would respond. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would soften their heart, throw open their eyes. They would see you before them and they would run to you, surrendering and moving away from a life with you. And Father, I pray for your people here who are bound up, weighted down by things that grieve them, trials and suffering 
in this life. I pray, God, that you would speak to the questions of their hearts that have caused them to wonder, what have I done to have God forsake me? What have I done to have God angry at me? I pray that they would hear the truth that all those who draw close to Jesus, even in their desperate circumstances, are truly the blessed and flourishing ones. Jesus, let our hope be put in no one else but you. Help us to hold fast and to rest in your own holding fast. When it seems like death itself is hunting us down, I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see the resurrected Lord who has triumphed over the very worst monsters we can imagine under our beds. And Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your covenant promises. You will surely deliver what you have promised. And in you, all our hopes are summed up, now and forever. Amen.